John McEnroe. It seems everybody has wanted to meet him and hang out. Keith Richards, to Andy Warhol, to Nelson Mandela, and many others. For me, it's been great fun to go from a fan of his about 40 years ago to a friend. We've shared the greatest offices in tennis, Wimbledon's bunker, the Arthur R. Stadium booth. I've learned from him and been challenged by him. John's passion for tennis and pride in still being a big part of it with his work in TV and the John McEnroe Tennis Academy in New York, that always inspires me. By the way, we recorded this just before the U.S. Open, Serena's swan song, and before Roger Federer's retirement. So my reaction to those big events are posted on my Instagram. But as you're about to hear, John is a man of many layers and great depth. I get asked all the time, what's McEnroe really like? This will open that window pretty wide. So here's Johnny Mac. So, John, we're at Wimbledon this summer. You call a match for ESPN, later call another match for BBC, which is a normal thing for you. Then we have a conversation. I say, hey, Pearl Jam tonight, Hyde Park, you're going to be able to make it. You said, no, I don't (laughs) think so. I got to do BBC Studio. Uh, That's kind of a bummer because I know you're a huge fan and a friend of the man. So I go to Hyde Park. It's this amazing show. Eddie Vedder is inspired. The sunset, the moon is rising at the end of the show. They play Rockin' in the Free World, covering Neil Young's classic. One verse into it. Enter stage left. Johnny Mac, guitar strapped over his neck, playing with the band. I think, like, holy shit, you didn't know if you're going to make the show and you're on stage with them. I mean... Yeah, I, I, they call that bucket list stuff, uh, obviously, <laughs> uh, for sure. So, uh, yeah, that was one of the few occasions. It's the only occasion in the open year that one of the men's semi was a default. So in this one case, even though I was very much looking forward to seeing Kyrgios play Nadal, when that didn't happen, then there wasn't really a late show I had to do. So voila, there I go. Uh, Actually, I played a show a few years back just before the pandemic, a charity show where I played with my own band in Seattle, ironically. And Eddie came to the show with my buddy Chris Chelios. And I got him to come up and play a song. It was only, you know, not 65,000, admittedly, probably <laughs> 65 or maybe 100. Uh, and Eddie sang Rockin' in the Free World, uh, ironically. So for me, it was unbelievable to go, you know. I had that happen twice in the tournament, which is, yeah, never happened before. First, to go up on my wife's, Patty's birthday, to go see the Eagles. So she, she played with Don and... Backed, backed him up on a couple's albums or one of her biggest hits is with Don. And then he asked me to play Already Gone at Hyde Park. And then Eddie did. So it's safe to say that I had a great Wimbledon. Well, I'm glad to hear that, man, because it seems like at times calling matches at the world's greatest court, going on stage with Pearl Jam, that's just like another day in your life. That's just, you, that's just a, a regular day for you sometimes. <laughs> no, well... Uh, no, that's not true. Um, I've been fortunate to meet a lot of great uh, people uh, associated with the music business. That's like my love uh, besides tennis and sports is playing the guitar, music, having the opportunity to meet these legends that I grew up idolizing. And Music is inspirational, obviously. It keeps you going on a boring practice session, blares some nice music. It keeps pumps you up. And then all of a sudden to see that, like, 
Keith Richards and uh, not to drop any names here, but Robert Plant, you know, you meet these guys. I mean, Led Zeppelin was my favorite band growing up. The Stones are amazing. And you're sort of like on the, you know, in some way you're sort of like looking at them eye to eye and they're like talking to like, oh man, I really love what you do. And this is incredible. And, and it's sort of like you pinch yourself, like, could this really be happening? So I've got to admit that, uh, over the course of the last 45 years, I've been very fortunate to uh, been able to meet a lot of great people and, you know, get respect, mutual respect from them. Yeah, what I love about you is you're not jaded about anything. And to have those experiences where you do kind of meet your idols, and they say that's pretty tricky, right, to meet people that you idolize. But then, as you said, eye to eye, it becomes not geeking out on them, but a mutual admiration society. Like, they appreciate what you did. I mean still surreal when you think about that or is it uh are you used to it uh, i think it's somewhere between surreal and you're used to it i don't think you ever get totally used to it uh i still just keep in mind you're a kid from queens uh and here you are uh, sitting standing next to robert plant so uh I, it never gets old. Um, what was it like the first time? Like the very first time you, you, they're, they're, you, you Led Zeppelin, one, two, three, four. These are all incredibly important albums to people sort of our age. And then, boom, first time Robert Plant is standing in front of you saying, hey, I like what you do, man. Uh, you know, trying not from sweating like uh, like Albert Brooks and Broadcast <laughs> News, you know, where you're just slobbering over him in, in a way, I, I suppose. But, you know, I actually saw Led Zeppelin uh, at Madison Square Garden when I was probably 15, 14 or 15 years old. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, why doesn't it sound like this, the song on the, you know, on the record? And, you know, I realized through playing, starting to play guitar and for and just learning more about music that, you know, a lot of the Zeppelin songs had three, four guitar parts on them, among other things. So it was almost impossible to duplicate it, but it was still like magical in, in its own way to see them. And then I got a chance to see them years later when Page and Plant went out, ironically, in Croatia. And that's, you know, one of the first times I got to speak to them. I mean, Jimmy Page is like a rock god. Obviously, he's one of the greatest guitar players of all time. I happened to see him in a couple of situations, more not casual, but like where he was helping out like the Black Crows and doing stuff for them and being part of a benefit. We can talk to them a little bit more than, hey, how you doing type thing. But Robert Plant, uh, he actually came on my talk show. I, I, most people don't know this, but I did have a talk show for six months back in 2004. And he was nice enough during the U.S. Open that year to come on my show and do a bit. And I remember. Someone asked me, I don't think it was Robert, like, what's your favorite Zeppelin song? And I always worked on the song, the guitar, Bring It On Home. It's on the second album. But, you know, so I sort of blurted that out because I was saying, even though there's like 50 or 100 other songs that I like better. And then I realized it was a cover tune. And I'm like, oh, my God, that was the old foot in my mouth one. He was probably <laughs> going, could he at least said Kashmir or Stairway to Heaven or something that, you know, we wrote? So that was rather embarrassing, but I luckily I got through it. I would have answered Kashmir. No, I, I think that, like a lot of people, I, I fantasize about being a guitar hero. I, I friends tried to teach me, but a combination of lack of talent and lack of patience—that's usually not a formula for success in anything in life, especially something as tricky as guitar. But the people trying to teach me were not all-time legends. I mean, you had. What, as the story goes, Eddie Van Halen, Carlos Santana, 
maybe Clapton once or twice trying to, to help you master the guitar. Crazy. Um, well, that's sort of true. You know, you sort of meet them and you're there to have a drink and they're like, pick up the guitar. Bill Wyman, the bass player for the Stones, is one of the first guys. And I, I really, it was, you know, I probably didn't start till I was like 20, 21 when I realized I was going to have a lot of time on the road on my hands. And he was sort of trying to teach me the one, four, five progression, which is like the most basic progression in music, like a blues progression. I was having trouble mastering that. I soon after went to Chicago, where a buddy of mine, Gary Fensick, who played for the Chicago Bears, took me to this legendary blues club, the Checkerboard Lounge, Buddy Guy's Club. And so I saw Buddy Guy uh, uh, play, and I was just like, oh, my God, this guy is just amazing. And I'd happened to travel with this guitar, this Les Paul I had that I bought, the first guitar I ever bought. I was like, God, this thing's really heavy. I don't get this. They're so heavy. And I watched him play, and I'm like, what in God's name am I wasting my time playing the guitar when you see this? I had this big hotel room, I have to admit, I don't know why I got it in, in Chicago. It was, we were playing at the arena near the airport, and I smashed the guitar to smithereens in my hotel room. I was like, forget it. It's hopeless. Don't even bother. And so for a couple of years, I really didn't play. But then I realized, oh, my God, if you pick up a Strat or a Tele, Telecaster, those are a lot lighter. And sort of got <laughs> renewed hope that I could do it. And played, you know, on and off because it's actually sort of tiring, like mentally, if nothing else, uh, when, you know, I'm trying to focus all my energies on tennis. Wasn't doing it a whole lot. At the end of my career, I decided um, I got to start playing more and I actually put a band together. Uh, I was I called myself the most traveled unsigned band in history. <laughs> um, we went all over the world. We were in Japan. You know, I sort of connected with tennis exhibitions, basically, but. We were going to South America, Japan, Hawaii, Europe on four occasions. It was unbelievable. I got plenty of, you suck, you know. Um, and then I started going out with Patty Smythe, my wife. And um, and she was sort of disillusioned at that time with the music business. Been on the road with Rod Stewart, had sold, a, had a platinum record. Uh, but she sort of felt like, and it, I'm sure it, to the degree it's still true, it's changing, but, you know, they don't treat the, women rockers the way they do the guys so she's and so i go hey i got an idea i, I bring a lot of energy and i'm playing we, we should join we should play in a band together and then she looked at me for a second she and she said uh yeah and we should play mixed doubles at wimbledon and i go uh you don't play tennis and she goes exactly <laughs> and, I, and i'm like okay that's sort of you know sent the message and for a while actually I was playing and then there was finally one festival I went to in Belgium. It's like one of these summer festivals where I was playing and it was only for rock and for the music. And we, I came back and she said to me, goes, okay, uh, we've got this, uh, we, we're about to have a, a daughter uh, together. We've got four between us. If anyone's going to play music, it's me, not you. Okay. So you veer back towards the tennis I'll try to take care of the music thing if I have take if I have time taking care of all these kids. That's a that's a great story. I know she meant it with love, but it's kind of an ouch thing too when somebody puts you in your yes. place. I, you know, the tennis racket was like a natural extension of your left arm and and maybe of your soul. 
was the guitar a little bit less connected? It was a little bit less innate as you tried to, to master that. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to bring <laughs> Patty back into this for a second because she had a very simple phrase that she used for the way I play guitar. She said, I wrestled it into submission. So that is not what you would call a major compliment. But you I win. When say, you wrestle it into submission, at least you win. It doesn't look pretty, but you, you got the W. Yeah. Well, that's the way, you know, as, as I've gotten older, Chris, I'm certainly trying to look at the glass towel full more often. So that's the way I try to look at that particular phrase. I do love it. It's a, it's a great outlet. I'm better than I ever was. I, admittedly, it's somewhat low bar. Uh, the pandemic allowed me to play more guitar than I'd ever played. Just obviously, was cooped up in one place. I was fortunate enough, one of my buddies is in Rage Against the Machine, and uh, we trained all the time, and we hung out all the time anyway. Not really musically. I jammed with him and Brad, the drummer, a couple times and been in watching Rage rehearse, et cetera, seeing them. But now we're just playing like the two of us. So I'd actually got a lot more time where I was actually playing with Tim and he was playing drums, ironically, not bass. And every now and then he'd be like, he'd, in the middle of it, I'd be all pumped up. I'd be playing a song and all of a sudden he'd stop. And he'd go, your fucking time's off. Your time's off. And he'd scream at me and I'd be like, fuck you too. Um, and he, but he was right, of course, like 90% of the time. And so the one out of 10 where I'd be like, it was you. Not me, okay? So, and he's not even playing his natural instrument. But um, it was something that Patty as well as said, you know, you know, you can sing in key, you're okay. You know, your guitar's getting better, but your time is a little, you know. And you can imagine in your head if those guitar people that aspire to play or try, when you're actually singing maybe too, and you're trying to think of other things and think ahead in the words, and you're listening to the other people in your band. I mean, it's, Let's put it this way. It gave me an appreciation for how great the people that I was watching. You mentioned Pearl Jam and the Eagles and uh, the police, you know, trios in particular, because I've been playing recently more as a trio. The police, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan when he played, ZZ Top, Jimi Hendrix. You Rush know, is a great who, trio. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I've always, Limelight's always been a goal of mine to play that. Good luck singing it. <laughs> Not to mention playing it. <laughs> I mean, if I could play the guitar solo and comfortably numb the David Gilmore play, I think I, I love my job as you do, but I, I think I'd walk away from everything. If I just had the ability to do that, I think I would trade everything for that. Your seven Grand Slam titles and singles. Uh, someone said, hey, John, you got you to give those back, but you're going to have this the kind of sublime guitar talent that a lot of your heroes have and that's going to be an ability that you'll have for your life you trade it oh god that's a tough one i you know honestly i think deep down in my heart of hearts i i made the right call i love sports <laughs> i really do i mean sports was my life growing up as a kid um so it's hard to say that it, you know, of course it's tempting to say if you were david gilmore is not only was a beautiful guy and a legendary guitar player, but he had an absolutely beautiful voice on top of everything else. So he had the whole package. So it would be hard to say, no, I don't want what David Gilmore or some of these other guys had, uh, these all-time great, like the the solo, you know, when the two guys trade in Hotel California, like, okay, 
this is, you know, this that's the stuff where, you know, they're up there with the Rafas and the uh, Novak and Rogers. You know, that's the all-time legendary solos ever in rock and roll. Um, and they, they lived a life that, like, it was almost, I remember times, because I'd try to keep up with some of these guys sometimes, and it was certainly fun trying, but there was a certain point I was like, okay, too good. You know, <laughs> these guys, Keith, you're too good, man. God Never party with you. a professional. Yeah. <laughs> but but I'm I got to go to bed, you know. So uh, I think I think I made the right call. Art's been important to you. People have called you an artist with a racket. I know that that's a compliment you love. I mean, do, the artistry is, is something that really, to some degree, cannot be taught or coached. It's just innate. Is the way you played? have anything to do with the way you connected with people who express themselves creatively, whether it's a musician or a painter? Yeah. You know, I'd like to think so. Uh, I, you're absolutely right. The greatest compliment I ever got was that you, you're like an artist out there. Um, and I think that that's something that hopefully that people remember that I brought to the table. Uh, so absolutely. I connected them for a number of reasons. One when I was fortunate enough to have enough money to be able to afford to buy a car. And in, in our day, Chris, you're, you're a little younger than me, but uh, uh, you know, you cared about like the, the sound system you had, like the speakers and that meant a lot. That was like the second biggest thing. And then if you could have an apartment, it was like, wow, I've got it. You'd have a, uh, you'd, you'd have it made. But after that, you know, when I first started going around with my late grade buddy, Vitas Carolitis, he started taking me to a lot of, artist studios and galleries in Soho, which is in downtown New York. And I got an opportunity to meet artists. And I was like, wow, it just made me feel better when I started to buy art and collect it, to walk down the stairs in the morning and take a look at some piece of art. It was sort of inspirational. The way you hope to be as, as, as an athlete, the way you want to pump someone up or I'm here at my tennis academy right now, hoping that, you know, some of these kids will be inspired by by me being here. Um, and the other part of the art that I really respect is they're out there on an island like a tennis player. They're by themselves. You walk into a show, it's sort of like you walk out. What could possibly be better than walking to the center court of Wimbledon, for example, and doing your thing? Well, that is sort of similar if an art, if you walk into this show and it's packed and people are like, wow, this is incredible. On the other side of the coin, what could be worse? If you go out in the Wimbledon center court and you lay an egg and you just feel like you're two feet tall and then same as art, you know, the guts to go there and somebody, oh, this sucks. It's terrible. You know, I, I don't understand this abstract stuff. Uh, or I don't, he, he doesn't paint well enough. So, you, you know, you're putting yourself out there. The other people would be comedians like stand-ups. Those group of people I feel more connected to perhaps than um, any other entertainment type of people yeah to can to continue the parallel you know you, you are out there by yourself and 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 many artists like many athletes are somewhat tortured at times in their life and and sadness and anger can be great sources of inspiration many great paintings just like many great songs have become from a place of anger um anger has played a role in your life we'll talk about that perhaps later but do you gravitate toward art that expresses intense emotions where you know and can relate to what the artist is going through when you see the canvas and you know 
he's poured himself out there and it's not always pleasant, but it's compelling. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in, in short, yes. Um, totally gravitate towards more uh, type of art like that. Something that's thought provoking that makes you think that can inspire. Sometimes I don't know what that artist is going through. I don't, sometimes you may not know yourself what you're exactly what's happening within at a certain time. But there's no question that that is the type of art that I've, you know, collected over the years. Uh, the type of art that I think is ultimately going to have more of an impact on society in general. And that's what we continue to need. And, you know, mu musicians, it's tougher. You know, I'm, I've been with my wife 28 years and um, it sort of feels like from what I see with her that you write more often, like you said, when it's things are sort of down or they're not, you know, it's easier to write sort of songs like that than upbeat peppy songs, you know, so and 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 it, it feels like it's sort of a shame because then it's sort of you want the, the biggest thing for me is I'd want my other half to be happy, you know, and fulfilled. And in certain ways, that doesn't necessarily help help her in what her job is. Uh, I felt like, um, you know, I was on top of the world in 1984. And I think to myself, you know, at that moment, I mean, I have this documentary coming out and it says, you know, I'm the greatest player that ever played. I point out that was, you know, almost 38 years ago. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I wish I could say that now, but I can't. But at that time, I was like on top of the world. And certainly part of it was amazing, but part of it wasn't that amazing. You know, there was, there was a void in the, And so it's you're, you're to find that sweet spot that you need to get to in, as a human being and as an athlete is tricky, as, as we're witnessing now with, I'll give you an example, Naomi Osaka, Nick Kyrgios, trying to find his, you know, ability just to go out there and, you know, give a consistent effort. It hasn't been easy for him. They even try all the time. So there's a lot more to it than meets the eye. So uh, I'm actually thankful that over the course of time, I've done it with you for many years, but as a commentator, yes, you're a backseat driver. But you also want to be supporter as best you can, as long as you see people giving that all-out effort. That's the one thing I really don't like. Um, but if you do, I feel like hopefully I can tell the people watching or get them be to better understand what's going on in the head of some of these individuals. They, sometimes it can be unbelievably easy when it's all working, but most of the time it isn't. You talked about the void. You used that word. Many people believe that achievement can fill the void. Success can fill the void. Money can fill the void. Sometimes they find it's like the exact opposite. For you, was, was that void or the sense of something was missing or the challenge, did it get bigger and tougher as the fame grew, as the ranking got better, as the spotlight got brighter? Yes, uh, something crazy happened when I thought um, things were just going so great uh, for me personally. Uh, my greatest rival I ever had, Bjorn Borg, at 25 years old, after I beat him at the U.S. Open to even our head-to-head -head career record at 7-7, seven seven and seven, decided he was never going to play another major. That, to me, was like 
beyond belief that like that was even possible. I, I remember when he said it to Vetus Garolitis and I, we were in an exhibition in Australia. We were about to go down to the press conference, having a beer before. And Bjorn says to us, you know, I'm, I'm retiring. And we started laughing. We thought he was kidding. We're like, what the hell are you going to do? You know, what the, we don't know what else to do. Um, and he said something to the effect of like, someday you'll understand. Uh, and so I'm not sure I totally ever understood it. Um, I get it certainly a lot more because he'd been doing it a lot longer and maybe he was burnt out. But the all that sort of attention that he had was shifted towards me because people were afraid to sort of look at the reasons as to why he was doing that and try to help him through that in my opinion. You know, that to me was a horrible thing to happen in tennis. And so the, the pressure in a way was amped up more and more on me because they didn't know where else to turn their attention to. And I was an easy pickings in a way. And so uh, that went on for a handful of years. And then when I met my ex-wife, who at that time hadn't done a movie, Tatum, my, my ex-wife Tatum O'Neill, uh, hadn't done a movie in four or five years. I didn't realize, you know, I might be an idiot, but I, I didn't think that the sum of the two parts was going to be so much bigger than us two as individuals. And all of a sudden, it became even a bigger thing that I, I must say, I had difficulties handling that would, that would allow me to play to the best of my ability, particularly since I wanted to and did have kids. So that juggling act made it a bit overwhelming for me from that point forward, even though I tried many different ways to try to get better. You know, I didn't stop playing for six months, which is not that unusual now. Nadal just didn't play for six months and won the Australian Open, for God's sake, at 35 years old. I was 20, 26 and, set, and turned, turned 27 when I started to take the time off. And I felt like I did it for the right reasons. The plan was to get better. How bad did I feel when I never I never even got to the same level, much less got better. So that wasn't easy to take. Uh, um, and then it's, you decide, like, uh, as an athlete, some people can handle. Uh, I remember in 1985, which was uh, just before I took the sabbatical, I did a series of exhibitions with Bjorn. And he, he was like, I remember thinking I was really burnt out and my ex-wife was pregnant. I'm like, I'm not going to Australia. I just can't handle it. I got to regroup. He goes, no, no, you can go. If you win Australia in the Masters, you, you'll still be number one. And I had lost to Lendl in the finals of the Open and lost to you know, Wimbledon. And I was, it wasn't looking good. You know, it looked like Lendl's would be number one. And he talked me into it in a way. And, and, and I thought, he, I said at the time, I said, you know, it's not that bad to be two in the world. I could live with that for, you know, a year, a couple of years. And he goes, it doesn't matter if you're two or a hundred. So, you know, it's sort of the psyche of the person. I think it does matter personally. You know, I'd rather be two than a hundred, <laughs> but he wanted to be all or nothing. You know, so you see how people operate in different ways. So I sort of went along for six, seven years, Chris, honestly, we're deep in my, you know, it's a horrible feeling and tough to even admit now, but. I sort of knew I wasn't going to win, you know, the, anywhere close to the level. I was maybe never going to win anyone. I kept hoping, you know, get one more. And I knocked on the door a couple times, but never did. And that was, that was pretty disappointing. Yeah, but you persevered, which most people, I mean, Bjorn never had to deal with 
playing tennis after the peak of his powers on the crest because he stepped out, as you said, mm-hmm. at 25, he's on top. Typically, athletes grind away and try to, you know, regain, recapture some of that as you did. And it wasn't like you fell apart. I think you made the semis of your last Wimbledon, right? And you, yeah. the U.S. Open, you were right mm-hmm. there. You were still contending. You weren't losing, um, you know, in the first round to some uh, no. ham and egger. So you, you were competitive no. to the end. But that, but you're saying that really aided you because you had been number one and, and it just it was, it was tough to abide the ero- slightly eroding skills and, and results. Hmm. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I must say it was, it's, it still was a hell of a way to make a living, you know, in a way. And so I'm thinking, don't, you know, sp- you know, spite your nose, you know, cut off your nose to spite your face or whatever the phrase is, you know? So I was sort of like, well, let's just keep at this. Maybe, maybe you'll get lucky. And it turned out, you know, at the time I'm like, who the hell are these guys? Oh, Pete Sampras, uh, lose him in the seventies. <laughs> Not a bad player. As it turned out. Andre Agassi, not too shabby. Courier was, you know, that was the last guy I ever played at the U.S. Open. Lost him in the my last Open in the round of 16. Well, he was pretty good there for a couple of years. So um, these weren't, you know, hacks I was losing to. But it was, you know, sort of like, whoa, okay, this is not the easiest thing. But And I had a growing family. So uh, it was a I, – I gave it the best – shot I had under the circumstances that time wasn't good enough, obviously. Um, but I felt like generally all in all, I, I feel proud that I've tried to make the best decisions I possibly could at the time. I didn't anticipate at the end of my final year that I get a, you know, get divorced, for example, you know, as an example. So that threw everything off for, you know, even further. So, you know, we could go on and on, but I think all in all, for the most part, uh, and I'll start with my present wife, Patty, I made a series of pretty good decisions. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, You were taught early on, John, perfectionism, as an example from your parents. It's hard to rewire yourself when you are a perfectionist. I I think chasing achievement and relentless improvement isn't quite the same thing as being a perfectionist, where it rips you up to not be... 100 out of 100, a lot of perfectionists, I don't know that they're, they're super happy, whatever walk of life they're in. How has that been for you, sort of the, the pursuit of perfection and trying to balance that off with a happy life? Um, yeah, I think I'd like to take pride in the fact that I've tried to sort of wean myself off that in essence to a degree that I don't want to put that type of expectation on myself every single day of my life. Some of my kids may tell you otherwise at times. Um, and certainly I have high expectations for them as, as, as I continue to do for myself. But I just think that at a certain point, uh, there was a course, an economics course where, you know, they talked about law of diminishing returns. And I, you know, I don't want to spend my entire life where like I'm not living up to what I think I can. I want to sort of look at the glass half full and, you know, look at this journey that I've taken and feel like this has been a hell of a ride instead of like what could have, would have, should have. You know, I could sit there and tell you uh, about what I should have done in the, uh, the, the tennis court. I could sit there and tell you I should have held on to a lot of art pieces that I bought that, you know, would have been a hell of a lot more valuable had I held on to him. 
And I probably, in a way, and I don't want it to be that way, where you lose sleep over that over more than some of the losses you had while I was playing. Everyone thinks it's like, and I've been lucky, I, I want to say that, that I've made you know more money than I ever thought I would. And I've continued to be able to make a great living. Uh, and, and I would be doing a disservice to the kids at my academy, my own kids, and a lot of other people if I'm sitting there whining about what I should have done instead of being you know, talking about like what we talked in the beginning. I just was on stage a month ago with Pearl Jam in front of 65,000 people with Chris Fowler taking a picture for me. Thank you. <laughs> hey, I, I happen, just happen to have a glass of water in my hand, which is, is just about half full. And that's an expression you've used a couple times here. And I know you use it a lot. And it's just a way of looking at life where you're focusing on what you have and not what you lack. And it's a beautiful perspective. Sometimes it takes a lot of us a little time to arrive there. Some people never get there, unfortunately. What was the moment, John, or the period of time where you began to look at things more optimistically? And, and, and I don't know if sunny disposition is a phrase I'd use, but I just in terms of, hey, things are good. Let's not focus on this part of the glass that's empty when I'm lacking. Oh, you know, when I had children. I think that I looked at life in a different way, even though my results weren't there. I loved having kids. Um, and I wanted pretty desperately to show that it wasn't about them, that the reason I wanted, I screwed up. You know, it's not their fault, obviously. But that sort of changed my perspective, even though I was getting hammered in, in some ways in my own head and by others. Why is he not one or two in the world? He's eight in the world or 10 or whatever the hell he is. Um, and I suppose... Um, you know, going through a divorce is really painful. Um, and it just, you feel lost. At least I did. Um, I remember when I met uh, Patty um, and then subsequently met her one uh, on Christmas Day of 1993. Didn't see her until September of 1994. Did not see her one time. And I was playing um, Andre Agassi, an exhibition in Phoenix, five days after he won the U.S. Open that year. And I'm sure that Andre, and well-deserved, was, you know, celebrating his win. So he wasn't too worried about, you know, the match he was playing against me in Phoenix five days later. <laughs> but I beat him, you know, and I hadn't played for the better part of two years, you know, closing in on two years. So, you know, I was feeling all high and mighty about myself, pretty good about it. And that's when I called Patty up again because I was going to L.A. for a few days. And um, at that time... I went out with her She uh, and, and we had a date and I was like, I think there's something about this. The next day, Chris, I went up to play this charity match uh, with Michael Chang's charity. And right before I went on the court, they told me Vetus had died. And I just went completely numb. And I'm telling you, I would have beaten anyone in the world. Six, I, I could have beaten Chang one and one that day. I just was so numb that I, you don't even think. And I called Patty up because I was coming back to LA and I was like, can I, you know, I need, I want to be with you tonight. And she's like, Hey, wait, hold on. Slow down here. You know, uh, thinking, you know, some guy just wants you, you know, you can imagine the rest. Mm -hmm. And to me, it was more, not that that wasn't something that I thought would be a good idea, but <laughs> at the same time, um, wanted to be with her because I needed, I was just was like completely overwhelmed. And I think right after that, I st after that horrible thing that happened with Vetus, I started to 
think to myself, this is a time where you've got to make, you know, really make more of an effort. And I started to feel like I was I was able to turn the tables in my life slowly but surely. But that was certainly one of the big moments for me, you know, and over the course of time, um, I think I've each year, I think I've done a little better, better job of it. So, you know, basically wean myself off that, you know, whether it's being a perfectionist. Uh, I mean, it's not like you never, you ever lose that, but I'm a little soft now on the tennis court. You know, I don't go for the kill like I used to think, nor can I do it now, but over the course of time, and, and maybe that's not the worst thing because I think I got to be a, uh, uh, you know, empathy wasn't my strongest suit. So uh, it was my weakest suit, actually. So I think I've gotten better in, in, in areas that I was weaker at and been able to appreciate. You know, uh, for quite a few years when I was doing commentary, I uh, was people would come up to me the first probably 10, 15 years. And they'd be like, you know, something you're a better commentator than you are a player. Oh, wait, just a minute. God, that, how dare you say what? And then I thought to myself, I was a pretty damn good tennis player. So if they're saying that I'm better at tennis at, at commenting than at tennis, that's a hell of a compliment. You, so you idiot, take it as one. So it took probably about 10 years for me to sink in, but that's made me appreciate what I've been doing with you and a few others over the course of the last even 20 more. Because now it's been, God, I think it's my 30th U.S. Open. Commentate. That's important to to understand the compliment more than the insult because sometimes you can take it either way. But I, it exactly. seems you did. I mean, I think uh, yeah, John. I think it's fair to say that uh, you know, number one ranked tennis player in the world, commentator right right there as well. So you you're, you to be a, to achieve two different careers that are related but different, ultimately different. Um, playing yes. is not the same as talking about it. And, and to be able to, to get to the pinnacle in a couple of different uh, professions and, and still be improving at, at after 60 is, is cool. I mean, I, as I said before, I, mean, it, I work with a lot of really talented, really interesting people, quote unquote characters. I guess you'd be in the character club. I mean, that's a compliment to me, it, better than oh, some I'd, bland I'd like son of a bitch so. who sits there. But you know, in terms of... Um, Working with you, I, I, it, it is so cool to see that as an all-time great and someone that's been doing it as long as you have, you still approach a routine match with passion and energy and interest, and, and that's not something that ought to be taken for granted. I mean, it, it is so cool to be able to share the space when, you know, or just a routine second-round match at some tournament. It is not a piece of tennis history going to be written on that court that day, but you still you get fired up for it, still, and it, it's, it's very cool. Oh, I- I absolutely think that's, you know, the biggest thing that I should bring to the table is an energy and a passion for it, you know, no matter what it is. I think that's what people want. And that's what I want. You know, that's what I brought to the table. I think that's what separated me for a while on a tennis court. What you know, It wasn't like, hey, I don't look like Rafael Nadal a whole lot with my guns, you know, if you know what I'm saying. Um, so I had to try to hopefully intimidate in different ways. And what way would that be? Bring that energy that they what they would feel on the other side of the net and throw them. Um, so that is certainly something I try to bring to the table commentary. I would like, you know, I, I got a couple sports Emmys, I think in um, Britain uh, uh, with, with the BBC, but I, I didn't get one. I got nominated. Now no one cares about tennis apparently. Uh, so we don't even get nominated or maybe we're not as good. No, we are as good. But uh, one time I was at the award show. It makes me think, uh, and I was, 
at a table that NBC used to be called, obviously you remember before ESPN did it, Wimbledon and the French. And so I was sitting at a table and I was sitting next to Dick Enberg. And so I was up against John Madden, who won it like 20 times or whatever, <laughs> in a row or whatever, and a few other people. And so they go, ladies and gentlemen, the best color commentator is John Madden. And Dick turned to me and goes, congratulations. And I was like, Madden. <laughs> uh, missed it by that much. Oh. The great oh, Dick Enberg, he, he he called it yeah. game set match a little too early there. That's uh, well, I don't. Think I you said, need... "Oh, that's the only time I said, oh, my.'" As someone who's not been showered with the with with the trophies, I can tell you that that's not about that. So don't don't worry about that. I I I think you're going to overcome. I made it through it. Yeah, I made the, it the lack it. the lack of a sports Emmy is is you're going to be okay. You know, the, just the number we talked about some rock stars and artists, but. Just the number of interesting people, John, that, that have come into your orbit, that continue to. Woody Harrelson sitting in the green room with you and Patty the other day at Wimbledon. It's just so interesting that these people, you know, they respect what you did. They connect with you. They want a piece of you. They want a piece of your time. They want to say they know you. I mean, that's, that's interesting to, to have, the, whether it's ex-athletes, you mentioned a few, just people of all sorts of orbits that you've had a chance to interact with and learn from and observe you know what the greatest uh th thank you for that and it's the greatest perk i ever got by far is this uh, the the opportunity to meet sort of these extremely interesting people in different walks of the entertainment business whether it's other athletes that i've become friends with over the years some of them i met younger than other others i didn't in all the different sports and then you got the, the movie stars uh and you got the musicians uh there was one person that topped at all of those by far um I, I i one of the best decisions i ever made was in 1980 when i was offered a million dollars to go play borg in apartheid south africa that sort of fake homeland they came up with to try to make it look like they were treating blacks fairly and i I, I chose not to go down there and I never went there. And um, I feel like I've get, gotten a lot of support over the years from the African-American community. And that makes me feel great that even some of them are aware of the fact that I didn't go there. But eventually uh, apartheid ended and I um, and Nelson Mandela was elected president. And so there was a seniors event that I went to in Joburg. And long story short, I went to have an opportunity. Uh, Yannick Noah uh, was with me and Bjorn Borg. And we got an opportunity to go to Nelson Mandela's home where he lived as the president. And I came, I brought one of my rackets, uh, Chris, that I, you know, the wood rackets from like the 1980, 81, which the last years I played with, I think 82 was the last year, but, and I brought it and I gave it to Nelson Mandela. And I saw him hold it. He had the most beautiful hands that I ever shook hands with in my life. It, it just, he sort of felt like an angel on earth. And he said to me at one point, he said, um, it's an honor to meet you. And I thought to myself, oh my God, I'd give $10 million if I had this on tape right now to these people that are, you know, going after me. That Nelson, you know, of course I was, you know, feeling that with him. Are you kidding me? But that was probably the greatest individual sort of minute, one of the greatest of my life when, you know, he said that. He's like, and then he followed that up with, um, 
You know, I listened to your match, uh, the match you played against Bjorn Borg at Wimbledon in 1980 or whatever. And I thought to myself, this guy was in Robbins Island for 27 years. And I'm sitting there complaining about a line call. And he doesn't seem to have an ounce of bitterness about anything that happened to him. And I'm like, how is this even possible? This is like the greatest human being I ever met. So I guess in some ways uh, it was, um, it was a, for me, an unbelievable moment to uh, be able to meet him. I, I, not that, you know, meeting a lot of these other people, whether it's, you know, Jack Nicholson, for example, and my, he was like my all-time favorite actor. You can go down the list. I've been lucky. But that topped everything. Yeah, I, I guess it would. I mean, as the story goes, Mandela convinced the guards at Robben Island to put your match with Borg on BBC Radio. It meant that much to him that he would try to press and get a favor out of them because he just wanted to hear on the radio and have to imagine mm-hmm. you playing Borg at center court. I, I can't imagine anything cooler than that, that, that it meant that much to him. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it's tough to it's tough to go. Where do you go from there? But, you know, it's of all the people. I mean, these people. OK, Mandela was impressed and, and said it was an honor to meet you. Who have you run into that was totally unimpressed? <laughs> Can't be as many people. So, no, that's well, that's you nice. Know, and then like Chris, you, you, you're excited to meet them and you just get nothing. They're like, <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, you know, we've been talking throughout this podcast about how we want to keep the glass half full here. We don't want to go to, uh, you know, the people that blew me off. So um, Sometimes you know, the, the put, empty half is pretty interesting, think, though. I don't want to think about that. I'll tell you about the worst human being I ever met was uh, when we played Davis Cup in 2000, the one year I was captain. Uh, we went to Zimbabwe and we had to go to uh, Robert Mugabe's uh, palace uh, because it, I'm not exactly sure why, because he's the president or whatever. And this guy had to be five feet tall and his hands was like he poured a bucket of water on his hands and shook our hands and he was sweating. And it was so bizarre. Like, and this is even before they realized how hellacious a person he was. Um, so that would easily be the, um, uh, <laughs> As I'm saying this, I'm trying to think of people that blew me off, uh, but I don't want to do that. I'm not going there. I'm sorry. You refuse to say who blew you off? And you're still, it's just, but is that pride or you, you don't want to make them look bad? No, it, it's more like I don't want to put out the energy, the ah, effort okay. to think about it, you know, because I'm in too good a place. I can understand that, John. I, let's not put energy on negative stuff, but it, yeah. what, what, I just joined a club that you've been in a couple of years. So, so when you're 60, you're supposed to have wisdom. You're supposed to have perspective. You're supposed to have learned a couple of things. I mean, how do you think, you know, reaching this stage of your life? Um, yeah, you lose a step on the court and, and some things physically as an, as an athlete. I know that's something that's difficult to reconcile for a lot of people. But what, what do you feel great about being, besides, you know, the alternative is not good to, to you know, walking around at 63, you could be, underground what what do you feel great about you know reaching this stage and, and and still improving in areas um i feel great about the fact that i at least you know i'm, I'm in my book that i have improved that little bit whether it's you know how i've dealt with my own children and my own relationships uh my perspective all those things you know obviously when you're 63 you're you know a shell of yourself physically 
but I still love to get out there. I love to try to work out, uh, get the kids, rile the kids up once in a while, show them who's boss. Uh, so that part, when I can't do that's a little bit tough, but you know, I think, um, I've tried to, for, I would say for 10 years, cause I played on the main circuit for 15 and for the better part of the next 25, I was actually playing more seniors champion, whatever event you want to call that, uh, than I was commentating even. So I recognize that that's a great drug. You know, it's, uh, one of the best drugs you can have uh, that you get paid for something, you know, what's the expiration date on most athletes is pretty damn quick. So if you think, you know, you can make it 40 years, say doing something and playing on a fairly regular basis, uh, it would be my duty to look at that like half full, but I was working hard for the course of the past 10 years to sort of wean myself off that addiction so that it would get to the stage where I'd be able to handle it. Uh, when I didn't play anymore. And I think I've done pretty well at that. So I, I, I take pride in that. Uh, I feel good about that um, because that's something that you could easily get caught up in and just, you know, I didn't want to be like, Mr. McEnroe, please come this way. Uh, you need to exit the court now or else we're going to pull you off it. And it was getting closer. Um, so you got to leave it to the other people just at some point, you know, I've really enjoyed the commentary. I'm, I'm thinking I want to do another great run, you know, they're five years, whatever it is. Um, and then hopefully, you know, I want to go out like on a high though. You know, I don't want to be the same with that. You know, I feel like it's been good to me. Hopefully I've been good to the people I've worked for. But you want to go out in, in, in a positive note for everyone. So that would be part of that and the opportunity to do almost anything and more of a quiet where you can be on the beach in California a bit and sort of, you know, that yin and yang is great. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I've worked hard to get to the point where I feel like I want to enjoy myself as much as possible and put an emphasis on that and spend time with the people I want to be around, not with things that I have to do. Uh, for reasons that don't have much, you know, uh, they're not important enough to take seriously, like just because it's money, for example. Uh, that would be one. So, you know, I think I've done a pretty good job going in that direction for a while. When you played, I sensed you were not one that would go from the hotel room to the court to the gym to the restaurant, the same one every night. You, you seem to value experience. You understood that, you know, it's, it's a big world out there. There's more to it than tennis. So many players today, so many athletes today limit themselves. And I don't think they take in what the world has to offer, even though they're being, you know, if they're flying around to these amazing places in the world, they don't, they don't sense the possibility or they think that even embracing that's going to detract from their chances of winning a title. You are still pursuing experiences and sort of embracing what's going on. You're going to Antarctica to play a match with your brother Patrick this winter, the first ever match down there. We were talking, you're just excited about that, the boat trip, just being in Antarctica. You seem to still have kind of a thirst and a passion for new experience and and, and the big wide world out there. That's definitely going to be a new experience for me. I'm not a big boat guy, so you know I don't want to get seasick, but um, that sounded like something like a bucket list thing. You know, and that's I've had a couple of those this year on the music side of things. Um, and I've traveled to parts of the world. That's one of the great things about being a tennis player is that you do see a lot of the world that you never would otherwise see. Uh, but it is true. I'd like to tell you that I was able to sort of, you know, do everything while I was playing. But I remember somewhat early on in my career, I'd be going out and I loved art. We've talked about that. And um, 
go to galleries and museums and see things that gets tiring mentally, you know, and I found that like it would fatigue me. So I, I actually had to back off on that. And some of the things I would have wanted to do, and I would have wanted to meet with people, whether they're politically or otherwise, to try to learn more about the city that I felt like I wasn't able to do. As a matter of fact, I did sort of push. Uh, I had this idea of doing a sort of a travel show. Obviously, the pandemic hit and that cut some of that off, but maybe the interest level, too. But go to the places that I'd been to that I hadn't really seen in the way I would have wanted to. And to meet the people in Stockholm, for example, meet people in situations that were out of the ordinary for me. And so that I could continue to learn. I, I thought that'd be interesting for a network. Apparently, it wasn't that interesting because it hasn't happened yet. But um, nonetheless, uh, there are there is part of me that felt like I could have done more. But I don't, you know, again, that's another perfect example. Like, well, I should have done this, you know, hindsight's 2020, uh, obviously. And um, it takes a lot of emotional effort to go out and do your thing and try to play up to your ability. Even when I was playing the champions tour, I felt like it took everything I had to try to do the best I could. And so you sort of are stuck a little bit into that hotel type of airport type thing. I was going to do the first one. The first episode where it would just be airport to airport to hotel to <laughs> tennis court to back and do the whole first episode like that. And people, see, this is my life. Oh, just kidding. There's actually going to be more to this, but hasn't gotten off the ground yet. Well, I can't imagine that there's much left on the bucket list, but then again, a lot of us never scratch everything off the list because you just add new things on there, John. But I, I think that in terms of people that I know of or, or know, uh, a, a life that's been and continues to be well-lived and interesting and fulfilling and, and rarely boring uh, and fun, I, I, hope you, I hope you understand that uh, if that's what it's about, you're, you're doing great, man. And that it, you're an inspiration to me and a lot of other people in that area. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I, I, I do feel uh, very fortunate. Um, I do feel like some of it, uh, you know, maybe I'm not so uh, dumb after all. You know, maybe I, I, I know what I'm talking about a little bit. Maybe I could get some of these kids or parents at my tennis academy to listen to me. Hey, you're a dinosaur. What do you know about tennis now? The game's changed. A little more to it than just how you hit a forehand. Yes, as you heard, there's a lot more to John than tennis. Along those lines, I recommend you check out the excellent new documentary, McEnroe, on Showtime. It traces the whole arc, how the legend was born, but more importantly, how he continues to grow and evolve. John told me that's what he was hoping the film would do. We hope you enjoyed my conversation with John. I encourage you to rate and review and subscribe. It really helps us. As always, my thanks to co-executive producer Jennifer Dempster and to editor Jason Weichel. We've got more guests coming up in season five of Fowler Who You Got and check out our catalog of back episodes. I'll talk to you soon.